thank you for inviting us to come <clears throat> to uh, share a little bit of what uh, God is doing in uh, the refugee work there in Greece. That's where we've been working. I don't know how much uh, you know about the situation or how much you've followed the the news or any of that, but we'd like to show some slides if the computer ever starts working. I have an old computer, and so maybe that's causing the problem. So maybe you have to do without pictures, but uh, I can just tell stories. Amos could also tell stories about what God is doing there. So uh, is there anyone here that has been in Greece with I-58? Is there anyone here that has uh, children or family that has been there? Okay, let's see, two, two families, okay, couple, good. We caught a vision, or God gave us a vision of uh, what he's doing there, and we just simply worked with what God gave us. I've been really inspired recently by a few verses in John chapter 5, where Jesus says this, he says, My Father works hitherto, and I work. This is in that chapter where Jesus had healed the man at the pool of Siloam. And uh, <clears throat> on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were angry about that, and then they were complaining to Jesus, and Jesus said, My Father works hitherto, and I work. And then they got even more angry because he identified himself as being equal to the Father. And then he goes on and says, uh, Verily I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, that doeth he also. For what things soever he doeth, these also do with the Son. For the Father loveth the Son and shows him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these. So, if I could interpret that in my own understanding, my language, Jesus is simply saying, I'm not doing anything on my own. I'm not going out and deciding, I, I think I'll go over here today and minister in this town or village. That's not what he's saying. But Jesus is simply saying, my father is working and I get in line with what my father is doing and then I do the work. Have you ever tried to kind of do your own thing and then pray and ask God to bless it? Hmm? Is that kind of normal? But Jesus is saying, I'm, I look around. This is my interpretation. He's saying, I look around to see where my father is working. I watch around. I, I got my eyes open. And when I see my father doing, is doing something here, I go, I go to work there. Maybe he's saying when I when I when I see people and I, I see that the father is working in someone's life, I'm work, I, then I get to work there. That's where I work. And so, this is very meaningful to me because what we simply saw God doing something, 
And we decided to work there. That's the way I see it. We didn't plan to make this happen. We didn't have this in our mind. But we saw that God was doing something and we simply availed ourselves to get involved in what God is doing. Does that make sense? Sitting there in the midst of that prison camp, we'll show you a few pictures probably, but the first year we were there, 2016, we were there for like six months that year, almost six months, two different times. We can only stay three months at a time legally because the visas are three months and then you have to be gone for three months before you can come back again. Over and over again, I heard the people talking about the fact that nobody seems to hear our cries. The world does not hear us. The Greek authorities, the army, they're not listening to us. We have no voice. We cannot speak for ourselves. Would you speak for us? And I said, yes, I will speak for you. Every opportunity that God gives me, I will speak for you. And that's what I'm doing here tonight. I'm taking the opportunity to share what I believe God is doing on behalf of these people. <clears throat> uh, in 2015, well, let me say this. I think it was around the year 2008 or 2009, which is now about 10 years ago. Syria was considered one of the top 10 safest countries in the world. Like number five, something like that. Syria, one of the top safest countries in the world. 2010, the Arab Spring came. Some of you might know what I mean by that, but the uh, Muslim governments were rebelled against by their people in, in Egypt, in, in uh, Libya, and uh, Tunisia, I believe it was, right? And then uh, in Syria, but the Syrian government responded with uh, the army and killed people. And so there has been war in Syria since 2010. That's now eight years ago. And Syria is in shatters. And we'll show you some pictures of that tonight. Uh, and people were exiting out of Syria. And I remember in the year 2015, this is when the major exodus happened. This is when the refugee crisis really got big. And I remember the day it was in, in, the, in the headlines in the news that Turkey opened its borders to allow the Syrian displaced refugees to move into Turkey. And the, and the picture was a wide road filled with refugees just as far as you could see walking out of Syria into Turkey. Several months later, many of those refugees crossed over the Aegean Sea from Turkey to the Greek islands. And on the, from the Greek islands, they landed on these islands about between five and eight miles. There's numerous islands there. This is what the islands where Apostle Paul made his journey. He stopped at, he stopped at Mytilene, which is Lesbos. Then he stopped at Chios, and then he stopped at Samos. These are the three main islands where these refugees have been crossing over. We're working in the first one, the biggest one, which is Mytilene or Lesbos. <clears throat> in the height of the refugee crisis in 2015, which is now two and a half years ago, 
They would have a five, they would have five to seven thousand refugees arriving on the shores of the Greek islands every day. These are Syrians <coughs> fleeing the war in their country. And they would land on the island, spend a couple of days there, crowding, just totally overcrowded every facility. They would put them, take them by bus to this center where they would register them, the old, an old prison called Moria, Moria Camp, and that's where we work now. And there they would register them. They would be there four to five days. They would send them from there down to the, down to the ferry and load them on these huge ferries every day. Thousands of people loading them on these ferries, taking them, uh, 11 hour ferry ride to the mainland of Greece in Athens, the capital. There they unloaded them at the port of Athens. And there these refugees by the tens of thousands flocked into the city and from there they would collect money if they could by Western Union and they would find a bus, a train, a car, a truck, any kind of means they could to travel. And they were heading for Germany. And tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands made their way that way into Germany. And as this began to happen, other countries, people in other countries recognized the door was open to go to Europe and so many people in these Middle Eastern countries and in Africa their vision and goal is to go to America or to Europe where the, where life is nice and easy. And when they saw this, this pathway, when they saw this doorway was open, they jumped on the bandwagon and they joined into that refugee situation and people from many other countries began to arrive with the Syrians and the, and the, and the Iraqis on the journey. And we were there in 2015 in November the first time those nations began to close their borders because Europe nations are like a united nations. They have opened their borders so they have free trade back and forth. You could cross from one country to the other without a problem. And their borders were open. But now they, are, they were forced to close their borders, put up the fences, and stop the refugees from coming in. From up in the north, it began to, one country closed its borders, and then the next country closed its borders, because it didn't want them to stay in their place, because if they come in, they couldn't go out. And so one after the other, they closed their borders, until finally Macedonia, just north of Greece, closed its borders, in our like December of 2015, and the refugees piled up there to the border. There was 12,000 people in a short time, sitting right next to the border, waiting till they open up the border to get through to Macedonia. And they never opened the border again. And so since that time, Greece has been just receiving refugees with very little way to get them on. There's probably seventy or 80,000 refugees in Greece now sitting there, and Greece has to work with them. <clears throat> that's, just, that's the present situation. 2016, Turkey, they made a deal, the European nation made a deal with Turkey so that Turkey would stop the refugees from coming. And they did, they tried even today, the Turkish Coast Guard are daily stopping the boats from coming in, crossing the sea. And so what happens here is that when those boats filled with refugees, when they leave the Turkish shore, and it's about four to five miles over to the Greek island of Lesbos, once they get to international waterline, nobody can turn them back. So the Turkish police do their best to stop them before they get reached the international waterline right now. And the UN pays the Turkish Coast Guard money for everyone they bring back and for every boat they get back. 
And I saw statistics for March. Some 200 some boats tried to get through. 280 some boats tried to get through. Only about 140 got through. Only about half the people are getting through past the Turkish Coast Guard right now. But they're still arriving. Why? Because Syria is still locked in war. And there are still people from many, many other countries. People from Africa, people from Haiti, from Honduras, from Costa Rica. Showing up there, especially women from the Central American areas. Being trafficked into Turkey. Being held in slavery and bondage there. And escaping. And running for their lives. That's what happened. When I saw, when we saw this mass movement of people, we believed that God was moving. God was doing something. When you see a large mass of people moving in the old, in the Bible, you know God is doing something. When God moved the children of Israel out, there's a huge mass of people leaving and God was doing something. I'm not sure what all God is doing, but I know He's doing something. so our hearts are full of what God is doing here and the opportunity that we have these are Muslim people most of these people are Muslim people I've I've been uh, studying and and, uh, working with with missionaries in Muslim fields for many years. I have preached about winning the Muslims. I've, I've talked about Muslim converts, but I had never led a Muslim to Christ. Many, many years. And so we end up getting to this island. And I begin to recognize that these people's hearts are open. And just maybe they could be led to Christ. What if, what if there would be Christians there who would love them when they arrive on the island? What if there would be godly people there to receive them, to welcome them, to show love and care to these people who are running for their lives? No, we can't speak their language, but we can love them and we can smile. So we purpose to do that. But what if there'd be no Christians there? What if the Christians in America would be oblivious to what God is doing, be busy with their own lives, or maybe be afraid to get involved? Oh, they're ISIS people, they're refugees. Well, we have to keep them out of the country. Don't touch them. We're afraid, right? That's if you listen to Trump. We're not listening to Trump. We're listening to God. We want to be involved in what God is doing. God opened up the scriptures to our hearts. How many of you know why it's called I-58? Isaiah 58, that's right. Why Isaiah 58? Because it talks about, in Isaiah 58, it's about the fast. Is not this the fast that I've chosen? That to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, you break every yoke. Is it not the deal that I bred to the hungry? 
that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house. When you see the naked, you cover him. And on and on. This is why it's called I-58. This is why it was decided to call this organization Isaiah 58 or I-58. This is what we're called to do. And that's why, that's why it's I-58. I have so many things on my heart. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to share. <clears throat> but I want to share this a little bit with you. What if God would call you to a specific mission field that is prophesied of what God would do to those people? How exciting would it be for you to be on the field at a specific place where God specifically is saying, I am going to do this. And you simply recognize that God is doing something there and you go there and you see God pouring out his spirit and the glory of God comes down and many, many souls come to Christ. Simply because you recognize God is doing something here. But what if you could see it in scripture? Would you be interested? Would you like to be involved? Yes? No? Maybe you don't believe it. No, I don't think that's what this scripture means. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 60. I want to show you. The time is going to go by really, really fast. You ready? Okay. I'm going to have Amos show some... Oh, or I'll show some videos here sometime. But I want to first look at this, scriptures. I know that you've probably read Isaiah 6 and you said, that means the future time, that's when the animals will eat food together and that's when God's glory, you know, all this is, this is all future, right? Especially at the end of it, it talks about the sun shall not go down anymore, neither the moon withdraw itself, and all those things. But I would like for you to look at this. This is prophetic, right? You understand prophecy? How often does prophecy come to pass? Once? Twice? Three times? More than once, right? You guys study prophecy? Am I right? What if this were for today? Now, I want you to look at this. We're standing on the shores of this Greek island. We can look out there. We can easily see the Turkey shoreline. We can see the buildings at night. We see the lights. It's about four or five miles. <clears throat> and this scripture, I believe, is what God is doing. I want you to see it. This is the message to the church. There's three, three things I want you to notice. One is the church. The second one is the Gentiles. Or I should say the first one is the glory of God. The second is the church, which is the glory of God. And the third is the Gentiles. These are the three subjects in this scripture, in this chapter. And in chapter 61, you could just go, keep on going. 
talks about they're going to be your plowmen, your vine dressers, and you're going to be the priest of the Lord, and all these things. It's, is this for today? Look at what it says. It says, arise. Who's it talking to? Anybody? Arise and shine, thy light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. Who's he talking about? The church. That's right. So now the prophet, the prophet Isaiah is saying, arise and shine. Your light has come and the glory of God has risen upon thee. Okay. For darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And, verse 3, the Gentiles. What's the result of God's glory shining on the church? Hmm? The Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. When the church shines like she ought to shine, and very specifically, the Gentiles are going to come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now we're standing on the shores of this island and it says, lift up your eyes and see. And we lift up our eyes and we see. All they, who's they? And what are they doing? They gather together. And we know the nations are gathering together over on the Turkey shore. They gather together and do what? They come to thee. Who? The church. Right? Thy sons shall come from far. Thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Oh, they're going to be our sons and daughters. Yes, Lord, they're going to be our sons and daughters. Here they come. And we see them. Here they come. Here they come. And when you see this happen, then you shall see and flow together. It means be very, be radiant. Then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will be in awe. It'll be like, is this really happening? And your heart will be enlarged. What does it mean to have an enlarged heart? What does, it, what does the Bible mean when it says his heart was enlarged? Open up. Compassion. When you have fear, your heart constricts. But when you have compassion, your heart is enlarged. Then you will see. You will be radiant. You'll be in awe and your heart will be enlarged. Why? Because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. And here they come. The abundance of the sea shall be converted to thee. Verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover the land. Cover thee, the dromedaries, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba. How many? Half of them? How many? All of them from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, a picture of worship. They shall show forth the praises of the Lord. These people are going to show forth the praises of the Lord. 
All the flocks of Kedar shall come to thee. How many? All the flocks of Kedar. What could that mean? The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar. God is saying, God is saying, I'm going to accept these people on mine altar. And I will glorify the house of my glory. God is saying this. Here they come. Here they come. We see them coming. And we say, yes, we believe this scripture. They're going to be our sons and daughters. Our sons come from far and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Meaning it's a place of protection, it's a place of safety. It's a place where you have nurture and care. And oh, do those women need protection. There is so much trafficking going on right under our noses in camp. Women disappear by the dozens and no one knows where they go. It's a horrible, horrible thing. They are unprotected. Who are these people? Who's Midya? Who is Epha? Who is Sheba? And who is Kidar and Nebaioth? Did anybody know their Bibles? Who are they? It identifies who it is that's going to come, right? Who are these that fly like a dove? As a cloud, the dove to the windows. Verse 9, surely the islands shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, bringing your sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God, to the Holy One of Israel, because... He has glorified the church. Right? Has God glorified you guys? Is the light of God shining in your life? Do your neighbors see the glory of God in your life? The ships of Tarshish. Hmm. Here they come. The sons of strangers shall build up your walls. Kings shall minister to thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be opened continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring to thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. And it goes on and on and on and on. I want you to think about this. Who is he talking about? Who's Midian and Ephah? Does anyone know? Who is Sheba? Remember the queen of Sheba, right? She came. She came to see the glory of God when Solomon was king. And she saw God's glory there. Now it says all the of Sheba shall come. Who's Midian? Who's Ephah? Who is Kedar and Nebaioth? Do you know? Anybody know? If you go back to Genesis... You can find him there. Midian is a son of Abraham through Keturah. Ephah is a son of Midian. Okay? Sheba, a son of Abraham through Keturah. Who's Kedar? Kedar is mentioned numerous times in the Bible. You should do a study on that one. Nebaioth, all the flocks of Kedar shall come to thee, church. 
But what if there's no church there? What if there's no Christians there when these people arrive? Will they see the glory of God? They won't. But what if there's Christians there who understand what God is doing and they see what God is doing and they welcome the people and the glory of God is radiating out of their lives? Kidar and Nebaioth are sons of Ishmael. Kidar is called, is named to be the great, 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 great grandfather of Muhammad, what they call the prophet of Islam. And when Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, he gave gifts unto these, to his sons. And what did he do? He sent them away to the east. But the sons of Abraham are blessed. The sons of Ishmael are blessed. And I believe they're going to come in. And here it says all the flocks of Kedar are going to come in. God loves the Muslim people. To me, it's a picture of the Muslim nations. And I've spent years desiring to win Muslims to Christ. Never had the opportunity, never was able to. They're really hard people to win to Christ. For the last two years, I don't know how many Muslim men that we've led to Christ and baptized. Their hearts are open. Right now, in that specific place, their hearts are open. They're fleeing because of war. They're sick and tired of the fighting. And they're fleeing from that. They're tired of the Islamic regimes. They're tired of the oppression of the Islamic thing. And many, many of them come. And they come into this Camp Moria. And there they meet the glory of God. There they meet the Christian who is shining. And the glory of God is on their life. One woman who passed through this Camp Moria ended up in Germany. She said, this is her testimony up there. The guy who heard her say it told me the story. He said... That this woman said, it was when I was in the Camp Moria, it's when I saw the Christians there, that I said, I want to be a Christian. And she said, today I believe in Jesus Christ. Because I saw them. They never preached to me. We're not allowed to preach in this camp. They never, they never told me about Jesus. They didn't give me a Bible. They didn't give me a gospel track. But I saw their lives. And I decided I want to be a Christian. Arise and shine, your light is come, and the glory of God has risen upon thee, church. No man lights a candle and hides it under a bushel, does it? When you take a, a flashlight out in the dark of the night, and you shine that flashlight up into the dark of the, the night, you cannot see that light unless it shines on something. You cannot see the light unless it hits something. And the glory of God is shining, outshining of God. And that glory of God, that light needs somebody to hit. The glory of God can only be demonstrated when it reflects off of the church or the individual of the church, right? This is God's calling for our lives. Over and over again, the testimony comes out. It was because we saw how you lived. 
we decided we want to be a Christian. Over and over again. And so we've been really working hard to demonstrate the love of Jesus to these people. Simply living in a godly, holy manner in everything we do, in all the trials they put us through. Absolute challenges. Anyhow, that is just very brief. What is God doing? God is doing something here. And so God gave us a vision. We would be able to minister to these refugees and hopefully share Christ with them. This is back in 2015. By bringing teams of young people here, the young people would catch a vision of what God is doing, would catch and hopefully draw near to God and see the glory of God and allow their lives to be affected and changed for the glory of God. And that's been our heart and cry. And many young people, their testimony will be, I now have a purpose. I now see, I've seen what God could do. And I'm, I have a, I have a desire. I, I see there's a purpose to really live for Christ. So, Rick, I'm going to show you a little bit of a, a, a video here from, uh, the background of, uh, of, uh, what's happening in Syria. And then I want to do a few others if I can. So this is pretty graphic. And I don't want too much sound on this, so don't put too much sound here. But you can see the pictures. These pictures are basically from Syria. That's what they're facing in Syria. And it's still happening today. Just this couple days ago, they bombed with uh, toxic gas again. And many people died because of the gas. It's illegal in warfare. This next one is, is a video of the sea crossing. Gives you some picture, some reality of what these people face. Most of these people have never even been close to a large body of water. And see, so they, they, they end up going into Turkey. They go down there to the, close to the shore. They find the smuggler. They pay hundreds of dollars. A year ago, it was up to like 1500 per person. And they would pack 40 to 50 to 60 people in a small rubber boat with a small horsepower engine and set them out and hopefully they would make it there. Overcrowded boats, they force you in the boat by gunpoint and if there's too many people, they might throw throw your baby away, they might throw your children out and you can't go get them. It is an absolutely horrible situation. But this next one shows some of what, what they face when they as they're crossing. Thousands of people fleeing for their lives. I believe the church should be there to welcome them and receive them. The opportunity is there to share Christ with them. Many of them are sick and tired of their religion. And they're... they're Hearts are wide open at this specific place. If they're still in Turkey, if they're still in Iran, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan they're not allowed to talk about God or the Bible. In Iran, many people are in prison because they dare to talk about God. 
Many Iranians have come and their hearts are open. The, 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 there's a generation in Iran that has rejected Islam and they come by the thousands to escape that and their hearts are open. We have lots of Bible studies with the Iranian people and many of them come to Christ. More Iranians come to Christ than other, than Muslims, than the Arabic speakers. The, the Iraqis and the Syrians are much more difficult to bring to Christ, but they, but they are coming to Christ. They're open and hungry. When they leave their home country, in their home country, they're not allowed to talk to people about, about the Lord, about Jesus. If they, if they get caught in Afghanistan, it's the death penalty. But now they're released from that. Now they're in a free country. And suddenly there's a release in their hearts. And at this specific place on these islands, the hearts are wide open. We do not have enough volunteers who can teach the word of God. We do not have enough older brothers and sisters who can, who can teach the Bible, who can do Bible studies. We have so many people. Then we have there in camp. So we, we worked our way into this camp and there we send our volunteers and they work eight hour shift. It's hard work. And you get very much involved emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally. It takes 100% of your emotions, your spiritual, your mental, and your physical strength. And if you're there for three months, you will be tired. You'll be, you'll be worn out. It is so involving. You, you see them. How can you not help them? It's very, very, but the opportunity is there. And so we show love in the camp and they come out. They can leave camp anytime and they can go to town. We can meet them in town. We can meet them out there. We can share Christ with them there. We preach to them. We lead, we bring them to Bible studies. We have a community center, which is called the Oasis there. That's open five days a week from 11 o'clock to 2.30 in the afternoon. And hundreds of people come in there every day. They have up to 600 people coming in there in a day. On average, about 400 people come in there for tea and biscuits and place to to simply relax and rest and get away from the pressures of everything else. They sit down, uh, Middle Eastern style, on the floor, on carpets, at a little table. They drink tea. And here we can come and sit down with them and share Jesus Christ with them. If only we knew their language. We often have interpreters and or we can use or we use Google Translate and we I say something and Google Translate translates and we can actually have a conversation that way. We really need but we need people who can speak Arabic. We need young people who could who could learn the Farsi language. The Mormons do pretty well. The Mormons send their young people out for two years before they can get married on a two-year evangelistic track, and they go hither and yon, and they learn a foreign language, and the Mormons sent their young people into this Mori camp, and we have to work with them, and they have, the, they have languages we don't. Our young people come, and all they know is Pennsylvania Dutch and English. But the Mormon young people come in, they have French, some of them might have Farsi. Guess what? They are absolutely effective. And I asked him, where did you learn French? Oh, I did my two years of service in Quebec. What were the young people, what were the Mennonite young men doing 50 years ago? Maybe some of you did it. Didn't you give two years to the government? Right? 
you forsook your family, your girlfriend, or whatever, your job, and you were very glad to give two years of free service to the government. What are the young people doing today? And we're losing them because we're not giving them anything to do. Hmm? What if, what if the church leaders and elders, what if we would band together and create a two-year ministry track for our young people where they would have six weeks of training, three months in Greece, six weeks of training more, three months in Iraq, another training. What if we could have a two-year track for our young people where they would be under godly authority, they would be trained, they would be, they would be working in the kingdom. They would give two years of their lives for the kingdom. What would the young, what would the 15 and 16 and 17 year olds aspire to do and be if they saw something like that? Huh? But we just don't have really anything for them to do except make money. Huh? This really, I would love to see something like that happen. Anyhow, that's just the vision, a burden that I have. <clears throat> What are we going to do? And so the vision that God gave us was threefold. We would get the ministers of refugees. The young people would get involved and see what God is doing and, allow, and give God an opportunity to change their hearts. Give them a perspective of God's heart and burden for the souls of men and for the condition of the, of the world and a burden to win souls to Christ. And three, the, the churches that would get involved would also have would experience revival and a blessing. They get behind what God is doing. This is where I'm at. Maybe you have a, you probably have lots of ministries here you're involved in. God bless you for that. But you invited me to come and share what we're doing. That's what we're saying tonight. Any questions? How's the economic situation in Greece? Is it still poor? Yes, it is. The uh, economic situation in Greece went down in 2008. Lots of empty buildings. Lots of empty commercial buildings, lots of unfinished projects. Uh, it's just a very broken economy. Yeah, it is. That's uh, that's for sure. Why Greece uh, keeping its doors open and all the other European nations are closing their doors? Why is Greece keeping their doors open? And then how do they handle these people? Because they cannot close their international waterline border. If boats get into the international crossing of the water on the water, they're not allowed to turn them back. That's international law. So any boats that get to the international crossing line, they have to receive them. And what is Greece doing with them? Greece is struggling with all that, but Greece gets a lot of money from the EU 
so much per refugee. I mean, it's like thousands of dollars per refugee that Greece is receiving. I'm sure they're not using it all properly and wisely, but that is what's happening. The United Nations of Europe, the European nations are sending money into Greece to help their situation. That is what they're doing. Any other questions? Where are they going um, after the camp? Okay, so so they come to camp and they really want to move on, but they're stuck there because what happens now is that Greece, when they come to camp there, when they come to the island, the the, the Greece has made the law they're not allowed to leave the island unless they have asylum papers, and so they now are forced to file for asylum in Greece, which has a broken economy. And jobs are almost impossible to find, but they have no other choice either to file for asylum or be returned to their country. And so most of them get their papers somewhere between three and nine months that they spend in this, in this prison or this camp. Some have been there for two years. Some get to leave around three months. And when they get to leave, then they can go to the mainland, Greece, and there they can hopefully find a place to live, maybe uh, be on government support for a while, but eventually they, that will probably stop and they'll have to try to find a job. But they don't... They don't really want to be there. But some people are saying, okay, if this is better in my country. I'm going to try to make it here. But it's a very difficult situation there. How big is the island? It's probably about 50 miles by 50 miles. It's a pretty good size. Yeah. But this basically all happens on one side there. Let me give you a few stories yet. One Muslim boy from Pakistan, youngest in his family, very poor family, Muslim family, strict Muslim family. Uh, the father decided the youngest son should be, should be, should go to school so that he could get a good job and that when his father is old, the son could get a job and send money to the father to support him in his old age. And so when this boy is 15 years old, one day, his father sends him away with a smuggler, and the boy did not know what it was all about. After a day or two, he realizes something's not right here. They're traveling and traveling. He calls his dad, and his dad says, Yes, I sent you off with this smuggler. You're supposed to go to Europe and get schooling and get a good job. And this is a 15-year-old boy. So he arrives on the island. He gets there. He gets put in this prison camp. And we're there. And my son Eric is about his age. And one day, him and Eric became friends. And, his, and they walk up to me. And I'm busy doing something. This young man walks up to me. He looks up at me said, Wie bist du? Well, ich bin gut. Wie wird dich? You know, I, I was just so surprised. And my son Eric stands back there laughing. And I said, okay. He taught him a few words in Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay, so this boy became like a, like a friend. He told us his story. He said, can I call you mom and dad? <coughs> so he became like a son to us. He ended up in the minor section, disappeared from camp for like two weeks. We didn't know where he was. Found him in the minor section because he's a minor. He has to be protected. So they put him into a specific prison inside the camp, all gated and barbed wire and everything else. Finally, we found him after two weeks and started, you know, again, sharing with him there. He ends up being sent to Athens. And he's in Athens for about a year. And this just this past summer, 2017, we kept connecting with him and 
and had shared some of the gospel with him, but he's a strong Muslim, and he's just a 16-year-old boy by now, and now he's 17. And so last summer, he begged us to come and visit him in Athens. So we specifically spent one day there, my wife and I, and our son uh, and daughter, Eric and Janelle. Went there, and we spent the day. He took my son all around Athens there, showed him all the uh, the Mars Hill, and he showed him the, the Olympic Stadium, and showed him all around Athens. He did, they just loved it. And that evening, we got together in, in the apartment, and we sat down, and I've been yearning to bring this boy to Christ, and so we started talking about Jesus. And he, he began to share out of his heart, and I could see the wrestle that was going on. He said, I don't know which is the right way. I just don't know what's the right way. He said, is it true? He said, I remember what someone told me that when Jesus died on the cross, that he took all the sins of man upon his shoulders. Is that really true? I said, yes, that's true. And he's just, you can see the wrestle going on in his heart. So we asked if we could pray for him. Yeah, he said, please pray for me. So we prayed for him. And then we gave him time to just be quiet before the Lord. And I said, we want to just be quiet. I want you to, to just ask God to show himself to you. And we're all quiet for a little while. And then we begin to pray for him a little bit more again. And finally he looks up and he says, may I pray? And I said, yes, you may pray. And he bows his head and he simply says, dear Jesus, please show me the right way. And immediately he was transformed. The glory of God came down in his life. His eyes opened wide. He says, I didn't know it would be this good. Dad, why didn't you tell me this before? This is so marvelous. And I was there watching this happen. I'm thinking he needs to confess his sins. You know how we want to do that, right? And I said, I said, Javid, you should confess your sins. Never heard it. That's not what needed to happen in his heart. You see, these people come to Christ in a little different way than Americans, than the, the Western does. Really. To them, actually, it's more biblical. Do you believe on Jesus? That's all it takes. And when they, when he considered Islam or Jesus, that was the main issue. And when he believed on Jesus... It was done. It's glorious. So many Muslim people coming to Jesus Christ. And I get to sit in that oasis, that community center. When I go there during the day and hundreds of people come in and out there, I fill my day with sitting down and sharing the gospel with these people, and there is no way that I can reach around to every open-hearted soul that's there. If there's two or three of us that are there, we can't reach around. Then they're begging. So one man, an Arabic man, comes in and he says, may I have a book? The book. I said, okay. I said, you speak Arabic? Yeah, I speak Arabic. I go, I reach over to our bookcase there and I pull an Arabic Bible off and I give it to this man. He takes that book in his hands. He looks at it. He opens the lid 
And he begins to read in Genesis chapter 1. Someone brings him tea and cookies. And he's so absorbed in what he's reading, he forgets about the tea and cookies for like 20 minutes. And I'm standing there just watching this man. Most of these people have never heard the gospel. Most of them have never had a Bible. There was some Afghani women came in one day. I'll never forget this woman's eyes. I have, I don't know if I've ever seen such open-hearted hunger in anyone's eyes before. So these women sit down there at this little tea table here, and I'm sharing a story with them. And this lady's just sitting there just, I mean, you could just see. She's drinking it in, working through an interpreter. And halfway through the story, she said, she interrupted the story and she said, may I have a book? A book. And she's from Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, if they'd be caught with a Bible, it'd be death. And here they come, and she wants a book. I go back there, I take a Bible in her language, I wrap it in a plastic bag, and I bring it out there because there's other people around here, there's other women watching, and I take this bag and I give it to her. She opens that bag and takes that Bible out of that bag, and she takes it in her hands. And I could just see what was happening. She had never before had a Bible in her hands. And now she wanted the Bible. All the opportunities are so wide. This is how it seems. I've described it this way. We are there running around with these baskets, trying to catch the fruit that's falling off these trees before it hits the ground and rots. That's the picture. There are hundreds of people there with open hearts that we cannot get to because we don't have enough of us there. And these are Muslim peoples. Now, when these Muslims, if no one reaches them for Christ and they go into Europe, what do you think they'll do in the next generation? If no one wins them for Christ. I believe it's the opportunity of the age. I have never seen anything close to that at all. That kind of hunger and that kind of openness. A man from Iran ends up coming to Turkey, fleeing for his life, having worked for the government. This happens over and over again. His life is a story. I mean, I could write a book, and I have to sometime probably. In Turkey, hiding from the government for three years, very smart man. He had a friend, a Christian, one Christian friend. One day this Christian friend comes to him and gives him a Bible and invites him to Jesus Christ. He takes that Bible and he smashes it into his face. Says, don't you ever give me a Bible again. And that Christian evangelist and his wife, they began to pray for that man Every day. He ends up coming to Moria. The last verse. He, he, he crosses over the sea, comes over to Moria. There's a whole bunch more detail. I'm just going to share these details about it. He had grown up as a Muslim in a Muslim family in Iran. His father wanted him to be a, 
a Muslim teacher and sent him off to school. This boy is very smart and had lots of questions. But whenever he asked questions about Islam or about the Quran, they, the, the mullahs, the teachers, didn't want to answer him. Why do you ask these questions? You shouldn't ask questions. Don't ask all those questions. He even went to Saudi Arabia to, to school for a year to learn how to be a good Muslim teacher. And there, the teachers there would not answer his questions. And so when he came back from Saudi Arabia, he rejected Islam. Because they wouldn't answer his questions. Rejected it. Declared himself without a God, atheist. And that's what they were at. They rejected Islam. And no one is there to share Christ with them. He ends up coming to Lesbos, and he comes into Moria camp, and, and one of our guys meets him and invites him to, to his house. Okay, I'll come, nothing else to do. So he goes into the house, and when he's there in the house, there he's sharing with this guy, like the first time they meet him, and just before he leaves, he takes a Bible, and he gives it to him. He takes that Bible in his hands, and he remembers the last time someone gave him a Bible. And he's thinking, what if I smash this in his face again? But he said, for some reason I didn't. And he said, maybe I'm supposed to read the book. So he goes home, takes the Bible with him back to his apartment, his renting apartment. He begins to read the Bible. This man's been very smart. He's a physicist. A lot of story behind him. Fleeing from the government. In one week's time, he reads the Bible through. And in the back of his Bible, he writes 69 questions that he has about the Bible. Remember, this guy had a lot of questions about Islam, right? So now he writes down 69 questions. Then he comes to the Bible study. Someone brings him to the Bible study. And there in the Bible study... He raised his hand before we got started and said, I have some questions. And the teacher said, let's first have a story about God's word and then we'll answer your questions. Okay, okay, fine. After they had the Bible study for about an hour, the teacher turns to him and says, okay, Rahim, you have some questions. Now we'll answer your questions. And he said, I don't have any questions anymore. All my questions were answered in the Bible study. And God's glory came down. He went back to his apartment and was and continued to read the Bible five to seven hours a day, reading it the second time. He comes to another Bible study. And there, in a teaching, a story about forgiveness, he raises the hand. He said, I want to forgive those people that shot me. I want to forgive those people that shot my wife and my three children. And so he bowed his head and prays a prayer of forgiveness and gives his life to Christ. Today, he's one of my closest friends. Loves the Lord. Ended up fleeing for his life again. I mean, the government officials came to the camp with his picture on their phone and saying, where is this man? We want this man. And the local Greek police found out about it and they, they stuck him into hiding 
putting him on the ferry in hiding and sent him to the mainland Athens to get him away from these Iranian government men who were after his life. <clears throat> this is the reality of these people facing. God's glory is shining upon the church. The church needs to be in a place where the Gentiles can see the light. And the Gentiles see that light. And they see the glory of God through you. God's glory has risen upon you. Amen? And what happens when the glory of God arises upon his people? The Gentiles will come to that light. And that's what's happening. You could, you could say this. We just over and over again marveled. I've been involved in missions for 30 years. Worked in Africa. I, I didn't actually live there, but sent a lot of missionaries there. Worked as a mission, uh, mission board chairman for many, many years. But the mission, they wouldn't send us on the field. They just kept me at home. And I involved myself in that work and a heart to, to serve. And, you know, someday I'm, I'm still thinking, maybe someday they'll send us. But here a door opens up and we end up at this beautiful Greek island where the Mediterranean Sea is just clear and beautiful. And the water is warm. You can go swimming every day. You can go, you can go. It's just lovely and beautiful, lovely place. I mean, it is just a tourist haven. And we're, we get to be at such a beautiful place, working with people whose hearts are wide open, Muslim people. To me, it is the sweetest spot of my life. So what are we doing now? Right now, we have about 50 people on the ground. We have an administrator there. We have an uh, a older couple. We have... A young married couple there as coordinators. They're, they're doing their coordinating, paying the bills, keeping the money, things going. We have a young man uh, there who watches kind of over the teams and helps the young people, encourages them, uh, leads them in prayer meetings and so forth and worship. And they play volleyball and they go work eight hours a day. And then we have the Oasis where we have a family. They're at the Oasis. They're there with their children five days a week, three and a half hours. It wears them out. Because you give and give and give. And the teams are in the camp. The, te- the one-month teams go into camp. They work in there. They serve there. This camp is on a hill. They, they go up and down this hill again and again and again. They guard the gates. They give out food. They give out water. They, they give out clothing. They give out diapers. And that's what we're doing. Simply giving to these people. And there are thousands of people. This camp is made to hold about 2,000 people. And they had over 7,000 people there this winter. And they put them in these small pop-up tents. And they'll put a family in an area this size. Area this size would have two families. They put a curtain down the middle and a family of four here and a family of four or five here. And that's where they live. And these people, they spend, many of them, all the money they have, travel for months. They finally get to cross this dangerous sea and they make it to the shore and they think their problems are past. And they come to this Moria camp. And you're there. And that's the only thing you can give them. And the woman's pregnant. Has little babies, little children. And it's cold. And it's wet. 
And there's a section there, which is for the women who are in danger. They have about 300 women in that small place. Packed full. Every bit packed full. And we try to protect them there. These women have been through the most horrible things you could imagine. There's still traffickers in camp. It's, it's a scenario. And then there's riots in camp, and then there's fightings in camp, and there's the Syrians against the Afghanis, and, and there's, oh, you name it. <clears throat> and then they start fires, and they burn you out. They burned our, this past summer, they burned our, burned our information center, burned the center with all our computers and our sewing machines and everything we had there. I think they burned up $40,000 worth in one day. Wouldn't let the fire trucks come in through stones of the fire trucks and just burn everything up. The next day, we go back out there with a smile, with joy, start cleaning up, and they watch us. And they're watching how we respond in the most difficult situations. And that's when they make their decisions. I wish I could be like them. I want to be a Christian. That's what's happening. Amos, do you want to say something? I never get tired of these stories. Uh, I've heard Emmanuel tell quite a few stories, and I never get tired of them. Even hearing the same stories over and over is so exciting. And one of the things that excites me the most in everything that's going on across the world is uh, the the thought of what is God doing? What is God up to? What what is What is going on? but really seeing how God is coming through and changing lives. And in the midst of all the pain and suffering that makes no sense to us, you saw the, the bummed out buildings and the people running for their lives and the small children. It makes no sense. But in the midst of that, God's glory is coming down and the church is growing. That just amazes me over and over. Uh, I have a pers- We have personal friends that grew up in Damascus in Syria. Uh, he is living stateside now because if he would be there, he would be forced to serve in the Syrian army. And so to avoid that, he's living in the States. But he tells us stories about the church, how for years they were praying for the church in Syria. He was part of a very small Christian, evangelical Christian population in Syria. For years they were praying in 2009, they had the Syrian government had agreed to having evangelists come in, let them use their stadiums and have gospel meetings in Syria. They prayed about it and they felt like God was saying, no, this is not the time for this. So they decided not to have these evangelistic meetings. Remember, it was the fourth safest country in the world at that point. Two years later, they disintegrated into civil war. And he says the church is growing there faster than it ever has before. He said what they were praying for happened, but it didn't happen the way they thought it would. Came through a crisis that God can work in ways that are that are just, it's amazing. It's beyond our comprehension, but it is really exciting to see God's glory come down. I'd like to speak to the young people here a little bit, if you don't mind. I don't know you. I don't know what persuasion you are, how mission-minded you are, 
whether you're involved here. And if you are right here in your local committee, God bless you. Keep going. But I don't know what it is that you do for excitement and for entertainment in your lives. Maybe you go hunting. There's mountains out here. I'm sure some of you probably go hunting and you get your sights on that 10 point buck. You, you get pretty excited. It's pretty, you know, it gets your adrenaline up. It's exciting. It's fun. I don't know what you girls do. Maybe you go hunting too, but probably other things. Whatever it is that you do that for entertainment and excitement, let me tell you, there's something more exciting to get involved in if you're not. And that is getting into the center of what God is doing. And we heard a window of that tonight through I-58. Get into the center of what God is doing and it will surpass shooting any 10-point buck, any sports game that you enjoy. Not that those things are wrong, but if you want true adrenaline, true excitement, and a true sense of fulfillment, get into the center of what God is doing. I was moved last summer when I visited Greece. I've been to 14 different countries across the world, quite a few second, third world countries, saw some extreme poverty, remote villages in Africa, None of those places moved me like it did seeing the humanitarian crisis in Greece. But it wasn't really the humanitarian crisis that moved me as much as it was what I saw God was doing and how people are coming to Christ. That is an exciting work to get involved in. So young people, get into the center of what God is doing and you're going to go for a ride of your life. Thanks, Amos, for that. Just a follow-up thought on that is that what we're looking for is for is volunteers for young people. We're asking for godly, mature young people. Because it's not a playground. This is a battlefield. We need young people who can stand, who know who they are in Christ, who can stand against the onslaughts of the world and the devil and popularity and all the things that go on. If we get too many young people over there who are just there for the fun, just doesn't go so well. But give us young people who are, who have a heart to serve God, who are under authority in their home church and in their homes. And we want, and we believe that you'll be able to do things for God that you've never done before. But we need young people who are under authority, who know where they stand. We don't want the ones who are wishy-washy or looking for a way out. That's not what we want. God bless you. Thank you for inviting us to come.